0: I didn't mind that I was working 80 hours a week. I didn't mind that I was barely making any money because I was having the time of my life. I was having so much fun. And in that moment, everything I was doing was for, you know, the clout. It was for the fun. It was for the community. It was for the artistic, you know, rewards. But it changed over the years.
1: Hey guys, welcome to episode 15 of the Per My Last Email podcast. I have no idea how we got here, but we did it. We're at 15 and I'm just so excited to be here and to have you guys listening. Today on the podcast, I feel like it's very fitting given some of the things going on in the world. Over the weekend, I saw the movie Gucci. So kind of feeling this fashion vibe and we just lost as a community, a fashion icon in Virgil. So I feel like fashion is on the mind and I'm going to introduce you to a friend of mine. I met years ago. I actually have no memory of how we met, but today on the episode is Anna Hovit diaz She's a fashion designer, entrepreneur, and educator with 16 years of experience. For about 10 years, she ran her own athleisure fashion line called Hovist Apparel. And then she transitioned her business to something called the Hovit Fashion Studio, which she will talk all about. And then if this girl wasn't busy enough, She's also the executive director of the Chicago Fashion Incubator with Macy's, and is just a general leader in the Chicago fashion scene. So I'm excited for you all to hear from her. But in the meantime, I do want to chat with you about one quick little thing. So you will hear this from Anna. You've heard it from me multiple times. I am such a proponent for people adjusting. If you are doing something and it no longer brings you pleasure, you don't have to do it anymore. And I know that's something we like teach children to just sort of walk away from something. You don't have to fight about it. You could just go play with some other toy. But when we're adults, I think it becomes harder. It becomes harder to walk away from a job or close a business or transition a business. And I think in the micro, it's really scary. You feel like you're throwing your whole life up in the air and hoping it lands in a way that doesn't completely screw you over. But as we'll hear from Anna, it all kind of comes full circle. And I think everything you do ultimately is a puzzle piece. And it fits together and makes this great, amazing image that ultimately describes who you are, both professionally and personally. The things that you like, the things that you don't like, the things that you excel at, and the things that you you know, tried and really shouldn't try again. So you'll hear from Anna, where she starts is actually where she ends. But for those of us in a little bit of a different situation, or for those of us who haven't seen the full circle yet, I just want you to remember and- Feel my encouragement when I tell you that this will all come full circle, whether you are waiting for some answers right now on job applications or new clients you've pitched that haven't decided if they're coming to use your services or not. I think the faith and keeping the faith of just trying will always get you to the finish line is important. And it's silly. Like, these are all things we teach small children. Like, try your best. That's all we can ask for. But as adults, it's really hard because we've got bills. And sometimes I think those bills cloud our judgment of what we should do versus what makes sense. And I think as long as you keep trying and you keep putting your best effort forward, things do click and things do happen for you. And Anna is the perfect example of that. So let's just jump right in with Anna. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for agreeing to be on the podcast.
0: Fair thing. I I listened to like snippets of a few episodes and oh, it's, it's really cool. So Thank I'm glad you. you're doing it.
1: Yeah. Thanks. This is unrelated, but it's snowing outside. And there are very yeah. few things in this world that make me as happy as snow. Oh, I, so, I know that 99.9% of the people don't feel this way about snow, but <laughs> I would like you to know that snow is the universe's personal present to me. So therefore anything I do when <laughs> snowing, is going to go well. And so now nice. you're a part of that.
0: Nice. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. I feel like if it's going to be cold, it might as well snow. Right. You know,
1: like it might as well be beautiful. I feel like the first snow, I usually get like 75 text messages from 75 different people. And it usually always says something along the lines of, Hope you're happy.
0: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm from North Dakota. Happy. So I'm used to it. And it's been, they've had snow for like two weeks now. So I actually feel behind.
1: Behind. We need to catch up immediately. What was it like to grow up in North Dakota?
0: There's not a lot of people in Chicago from North Dakota, at least not that I've met. But I grew up in Grand Forks, North Dakota, which, you know, is a pretty big city in North Dakota, but it's only about 45,000 people. So it was still pretty rural. And my family are all farmers. So we Mm. did spend a lot of time out in the country on my grandfather's farm. And my brother is now taking over my family farm. So he's a couple years younger than me. So he will be a North Dakotan for life. So I'll probably be back to visit him at least once a year for the rest of my life. What's a person from North Dakota called? A North Dakotan. Yep. So he grows sugar (laughs) beets. Okay. With sugar beets are, no one knows what sugar beets are, but basically no. they're these big beets that come out of the ground and they are refined into sugar. So they're like the same exact molecular compound as sugar cane, but they're these big, ugly beets that are grown in the American Midwest. Interesting. Interesting. Random North Dakotan farming fun fact. <laughs> um, is this like,
1: like, is it used as a substitute for sugar and no one would ever know, like on a label, if it says sugar,
0: could it be Correct. like, like the, any kind of sugar? thing? So like Hershey's uses sugar beet sugar.
1: Wow. Isn't
0: that interesting.
1: The more, you know. So uh, growing
0: up in North Dakota yeah. was was really nice. It was pleasant. It was cold, always cold. I mean, imagine Chicago weather about 20 degrees colder at all times. Wow. That's North Dakota. So growing up, it was a lot of snowmobiling ice skating, playing hockey. There wasn't a lot of fashion. I was one of the few Mm -hmm. people who were really into fashion. And especially in the mid nineties, you didn't have the internet. So all of our clothing had to come from catalogs or we'd have to go to Fargo or Minneapolis, the big cities to get any cool clothing. Wait, hold
1: on, hold on. We like skipped over a really important part here.
0: You had to get them in catalogs. Yeah, oh my gosh, I ordered all my clothing from catalogs when I was a young person oh like Delias, Aloy. We um, remember
1: Delias,
0: right? But we had a Delias
1: store at the mall. Oh,
0: See so you're lo- so lucky. We did not have a Delias store. <laughs> you the best had a thing we had a brand was We had Dayton's, which was fine, but yeah, we had a magazine we would order our school clothes from, and we would go to Minneapolis, St. Paul once a year to do school shopping. Wow. How long of a drive was that? About five hours. Stop it. You would drive
1: five hours to get school clothes for the year.
0: Yeah. We'd go to the Mall of America. It was a big deal.
1: It feels like it. That way I understand why I fixed fashion. You were like, this is the
0: greatest day of my life. Right? I mean, no one else was interested in fashion. I was such a weirdo growing up because I would wear like my aunt's hand-me-downs from the 1970s, like bell bottoms and jumpsuits. Wow. And like, I would, you know, get all these clothes in Minneapolis that people didn't have. And I'd wear like huge platform heels in like sixth, seventh grade. People yeah. thought I was a total weirdo.
1: Okay. Was it just like innately in you that you were like, I'm obsessed with clothes? Did did it like come from somebody or you were just, just like, I don't know, you just appeared obsessed with clothing.
0: I was just obsessed. I don't know what it was. I mean, I was very inspired by like television and magazines, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't a certain person. I didn't know any fashion designers in North Dakota. People wore like these Russell pants and sweatshirts and like, those bomber hats every day like from the movie Fargo. And so like I was such a fish out of water yeah. and the idea of getting into fashion as a career and being a fashion designer was like a dream that I really thought would never happen to me.
1: Okay, so you graduate high school, you're like the weird kid wearing the weird clothes. <laughs> yeah. And you presumably like went to fashion school or like what happened next?
0: I went to the School of the Art Institute for Fashion which You know, it was an incredible experience for me because I'm coming from small town, North Dakota, and then ending up on the corner of state and Randolph in the dorms for SAIC. And it was such a culture shock to me. But I was so excited because there was such a void of culture from where I was from that I was just thrilled. I was thrilled to be there. I was thrilled to like be in a city, meet people of different cultures. And now I've been here 18 years, which is over half my life.
1: I know. Was your family like, oh my God, where are we? This is not, we have to take her back. What did we all agree to do (laughs) here?
0: You know, my parents are very different from one another. So my dad Mm -hmm. was, was a little against it. I think he was a little nervous about it, but my mom was all for it. My mom loves Chicago. She visits me all the time. So I think she was really excited. You were like her
1: baby that like gave her a whole new world.
0: Yeah. Gave her a reason to travel to the city. Yeah.
1: Amazing. All right. So you get to Chicago, you're, you know, you're here, you're hanging out, you're learning, you're around people also wearing, okay, I'm not going to be kind to Chicago right now, but like, <laughs> I'm sure compared to North Dakota, we are very cultural. We have many different types of people wearing many different types of things. For a girl from here, I'm irritated 90% of the time because I think everyone looks identical and wearing <laughs> the same stupid thing. And like, everyone needs to go to New York immediately and like, learn what it means to be an individual. But
0: right. from North Dakota, I feel that way now.
1: I was, yeah. Yeah. It was gradual, right? Like it's, <laughs> I grew up in this version. So to me, this is not enough, but like from North Dakota to come here, you're like, wow, this is like everywhere. Something's different. When you were in school or finishing, did you really think like, I might be able to like make this work? Or was it still kind of like, oh, this would be cool, but I probably should like figure something else out.
0: That's a good question. I. My school was very hard. The School of the Art Institute is a very competitive school, especially the fashion department. You have to apply to get in. It is extremely rigorous. And they basically tell you you're terrible for four years, which is really great because then by the time you get out of school and you're applying for jobs and people are like, wow, this is good stuff. You're like, really? I actually am good at this. So it was a really good Like kicking the ass to explore my creative side. And so when I graduated, I got a job at a, a place called Kids Headquarters, which was a baby clothes company that mass manufactured for Target, Walmart and Marshall Field. Not my ideal dream job. But I had a job. Someone was paying me to work in fashion and not retail. I'd been working in retail all through college, which, you know, is a much lower bar to get into, but you're still in fashion. They were actually paying me to design things and pick colors and like Mm -hmm. work with factories. And that was like a good starting point. But then the recession of 2009 hit and our whole office got laid off within about 18 months of me working there. So I applied for numerous jobs. I was on unemployment. And that was when I decided to start my own fashion line.
1: Let's address this. Like I'm sitting on unemployment. What the hell do I do? Because mm-hmm. I also think the last two years had a bit of that, but it was very different. And there was like this concept of an un- unemployment. Why don't I do something while on unemployment and like use it? Versus I think 2008 through 10 was a very different version of unemployment. And like the mental state of unemployment was very different. So like, what was your state of mind of like, I need money versus like, oh, I'll just like sit down on unemployment for a while and like build this whole life
0: while I'm sitting here. It was a different time in that I was pretty desperate to get a job. I mean, I was out on my own. I had to pay rent and we didn't know how much unemployment would last. And we weren't getting the extra unemployment that people got during the pandemic so it wasn't like this cushy thing it was very nerve-wracking and i mean i was applying for dozens of jobs every week and i'm talking like starbucks i couldn't find anything so i decided to just you know start my own line see what happens because i had been posting a few of my designs online and people had expressed interest in buying them so i was selling like a piece here a piece there and i thought you know what i We'll just launch this fully and then see what happens. If it fails, no big deal. I'll go home to North Dakota. I'll live with my parents. I'll just make it work. But I will say simultaneously, I had to pay my rent. So I started doing tutoring on the side. I started doing academic tutoring through a friend of mine and specifically standardized tests, which I'm weirdly obsessed with. I love the ACT and SAT and GRE and GMAT. I know it's very bizarre, but it was literally the first question I wrote down to ask you. (laughs) It's a great source of income. I'm really good at it. People pay really well for, you know, skillful standardized test prep. And I could make my own schedule. I think that was the biggest thing. It's like if you get a nine to five, it's really hard to start your side hustle. Because you're so tired by the time you get home. But if I tutored in the evenings, I could go and work on my designs all day and then I'd have to go to work later. It wasn't as exhausting.
1: I am like the creative child who like has a Virgo brain. So like I get very organized, but like realistically, I'm like the creative child. My older sister is the opposite. Everything that I am, she is the opposite of it. (laughs) She went to school, she went to college for math, has a master's in mathematics. Is a math teacher, literally tutors math to all ages, like the opposite human of me. The idea that I would tutor someone in anything and then like go and like design a living room that morning makes no sense to me. I can like teach you how to organize something, I can teach you how to label something, but like to teach anything else is like beyond my comprehension. So I I need to understand, do you have like a really active left and right brain? Are you two personalities in one? Like how do we get a (laughs) designer? And I want to teach you how to take the ACT in (laughs) one
0: I think I am like a 50-50 combo for sure. I've always been very logical and very organized and very academic. I like to check boxes. I like to be organized. But I've always been very aesthetically creative. And in my 20s, it was a lot of like painting and drawing and fashion design. And as I'm getting older, I'm using a lot of my creativity in different ways, like, you know, building businesses and thinking about new ways to create employee manuals. And like, I think creativity can be used in a lot of different ways. And even though those two things seem like stark contrast, I'm using both sides of my brain in both of my businesses because they definitely do overlap for sure. But I love teaching, especially young people, whether it's fashion design, fashion consulting, uh, math, or ACT tutoring, like I vibe with young people, like teenagers, young adults. Like I think back to when I was a teenager and how condescending everyone was to me. Mm. And I really try to give a different approach to, you know, 15 to 25 year olds who are much, much more mature than we give them credit for. And that helps me be able to connect with them and hopefully teach them things that they need to learn, whether it's for getting into college or for their own passions.
1: And it's interesting too that like you know the thing for so many years, and we'll get to where we are now. But like for so many years, the thing that like was being posted and the thing that was out in the world isn't actually the thing that was paying the rent. Mm-hmm, like the absolutely, was the rent was like behind closed doors to some extent. Like this is, I am a fashion designer. Also, I will t- tell you how to take an ACT test. Like, <laughs> like it's two things, and yet like I think that's it's really important to showcase because there's so much on the internet about like follow your passion and it'll work out and okay, but, but hold on a sec. Like you've got to pay the bills in the meantime. And I think it would be so cool if there was more sort of showing of like, hold on, there's like actual ways here to like pay the bills and make monies with the skills you've got while building something. Cause it will take time instead of mm-hmm. saying like, Oh, I have this passion. I'm going to make this business. And then suddenly you think in six months, you're like a million dollar business. And then the rest of us who are actually physically trying to do it are like, it's not going to work in six months. It's not working.
0: Absolutely. And it. At the time, I left those worlds very separate for a couple of reasons. I had this idea that these tutoring parents, if they knew I was a fashion designer, they may feel some sort of way about that, whether they thought maybe I wasn't serious about tutoring. Maybe they had, you know, prejudgments about artists and fashion designers, maybe not being as smart or as academic yeah. or as serious. And then on the other side, like, You know, at the beginning of my company in 2009, 2010, that's when social media was just becoming a thing. And it was all about this persona, this persona of like, you know, the successful fashion designer, the socialite, this artist. And if I said, you know, oh, by the way, I tutor on the side, then I almost felt like a bit of a failure as if like, I didn't want them to know that I also had to do this other thing, whether that made me look nerdy or maybe that made me look dependent on this other income. But nowadays I do promote both sides because I, I have found success in both and I can lean on either one.
1: I think, I mean, I've talked about that so many times. I think it's so hard, especially when you are young to say, I want to be X and I'm working towards that. And I'm also doing Y because you feel like one undermines the other. You feel like no one's taking you seriously to begin with on either front. And so there can't be multiple fronts and you live in this like stupid world of like, just trying to get anyone to take you seriously and like to make money, you need everyone to take you seriously. And it's, it's this really annoying thing. And I've talked about it in my own world of like, I think a lot of like, for me, it was like, ego isn't the right word, but it was like, I didn't want to devalue the things I had done to get me somewhere and saying, now I have to go do X, Y, Z to get money because somehow it like devalued the work and the, the effort, but the dream takes a long time. Like no one's, No one's giving anyone credit on like the dream takes a really long time to create.
0: The question also is, what is that dream? Because you could have a business that outwardly looks very successful. You're getting press, you're getting fame, you're getting sales. But at the end of the day, is it profitable? And is it profitable to a point where you can live off of it? You know, I don't know. I don't know. That means a different thing to different people. And so, you know, with my fashion business, I was very successful in that, I had a ton of press. People knew who I was. I would see strangers walking down the street wearing my clothing, which is like the best feeling I've ever had in my whole life. And at the end of the day, I couldn't live off it. You know, manufacturing apparel in the U.S., the profit margins are so slim that, you know, I was making $25,000 a year in profit. And I just had to continue tutoring or getting other jobs, you know, to live a standard life in Chicago.
1: So, okay, let's backtrack a little bit because I actually want to touch on that. So you go on and, you know, you're unemployed, you get laid off, you're like, all right, I'm going to start trying to make my own clothing and make my own fashion label, And so you're tutoring. And so tell me a little bit about like the process for you of creating what became your own label.
0: So I decided to launch my own line in March of 2009. And I really teamed up with a lot of other peers who were creative, who were in the industry, and we could do a lot of trades. I didn't have a lot of money to start a fashion line. And so I'd find photographers, models, makeup artists, hairstylers, and we would just do trades. They would help me with shows. I would give them clothes or give them images for their portfolio. And before long, i got into the Macy's Chicago Fashion Incubator. I got my clothes on Jennifer Hudson. I got into Akira and things just kind of took off. And so I quickly had to learn how to run a business because I had no business experience. I had no entrepreneurship or marketing classes. And I just would ask a million questions. I would call my accountant. I would call my banker. I would read books. I would watch YouTube videos, just kind of figuring out like, how do I do all of this? And then kind of keeping my head above water until I would get to the next season, get to the next season. And over the course of 10 years, I built a business that, you know, did well and was profitable and was very efficient. And then after about 10 years, I decided, you know, I'm kind of stuck in the same brand. Once you have a fashion brand, you can't drastically change it. You're kind of pigeonholed into that brand. And after 10 years, I was a little bored of it, to be mm. honest. I mean, it wasn't super profitable and I was designing the same things over and over. And for a creative, that's just not as fun.
1: You know, I think you you keep touching on this moment that, that is super, super important. This definition of success, I think it changes with age. like as we age, right? We define it differently. I had asked you to kind of like write some thoughts down. You said that at one point there was a goal of like fun and creativity and fame and now those goals look very different. And I would argue probably that's all tied to the definition of success and what success means to you when you're you know, 24 or 25 and what it means to you um, 10 years later. Can you kind of chat about like, you you know, get laid off. You're like, all right, I'm doing this. I'm making this brand. What in that moment did success look like for you? And then in retrospect, you're like, well, actually, this is actually
0: what I'm now striving for. Yeah. So I started my fashion line when I was 23 years old. And it was an incredible time in Chicago artistic culture because there was so much good music and art and fashion in Chicago. And I was part of these groups and communities that were just creating, constantly creating. And so for me, having this line was a big social driver. I would go out, I would go to fashion shows, I would go to photo shoots. And then the more people who knew who I was, the more access I got to different events. And I was single, I had no kids. So I was living the life. Like I didn't mind that I was working 80 hours a week I didn't mind that I was barely making any money because I was having the time of my life. I was having so much fun. And in that moment, everything I was doing was for, you know, the clout. It was for the fun. It was for the community. It was for the artistic, you know, rewards. But it changed over the years. Mm -hmm. So now I'm 36. I'm seven months pregnant with my first child. I bought a house this year. I have a husband And so like my priorities are very different now. Like I still like to have fun and I still like to create, but you know, now it's really about like building a business that will make us enough money to keep living the way we are. And then hopefully have an exit strategy to set us up for retirement in 30 years.
1: Is there still any like want to have that moment where you saw somebody wearing your clothes walking down the street? Like, is there any little like teeny tiny piece of you that's like, it, this all sounds great, but it'd be so cool if somebody walked down the street in my clothes again.
0: You know, sometimes I still see strangers wearing yeah. my clothes or I get contacted about, you know, I have this piece, you know, it's getting worn after 10 years. Can you make it for me again? But I really don't have that need to Mm -hmm. see my art on other people. It's kind of like I sold my motorcycle about a year ago and I thought I would miss it so much. Even when I see bikes on the road, I'm like, you know what? I don't. I enjoyed it. It was great while it lasted. I have photos of it. I have memories of it, but I have a different time in my life where I can Mm -hmm. find a substitute for that thrill.
1: I'm definitely very much like, I think in that moment where I'm about to like stop wanting it. (laughs) And I keep thinking about like, I'm 31 and I turned 30 like in the pandemic. So I also feel like my transition was kind of like stolen from me. And I keep thinking about like things that happened in my twenties. And even you just described like the clout of it all. I remember going to, it must have been like some event for some board that I was sitting on. And it was the first time I'd been to an event where like, we were all going to wear like ball gowns. Right. And so I'm in this like gown and I'm all done up and I have like, you know, fake diamonds hanging from my ears. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror and being like, you did it. You did it. Like you became the person you wanted to be good for you. Now I get these invites and I'm like, how do I get out of this? Like, I don't want to go. <laughs> like, what like funny? what airplane should I get on? <laughs> like, how do that I? might
0: know? be part. That might be part of the pandemic too. I think all of us are are much more chill and much yeah. more resistant to get up and get <laughs> ready and get out. I think there's also like, like an oversaturation of social media. Like mm-hmm. 10 years ago, you posted something and it was so special and fun yeah. and you got these comments and now it's like vomit all yeah. over my social media that like, I can't compete. I can't compete with these influencers with their yeah. perfect hair and their perfect clothes. So I don't even try anymore. <laughs> like I don't care anymore. I don't care. Like, I, I, you know, we'll post things for my friends and family. And then I have a separate business page that I have someone else do. I'm at that point where like social media was my life and posting things for my life. But at that point I felt like it was going to the people I knew at this point, I feel like I'm in competition with the whole world and it's exhausting.
1: Yeah. I can't like, I'm just, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little confused on what I want at the moment. Hence I made a podcast
0: <laughs> and I'm like, I'm
1: going to talk to everybody <laughs> on the whole planet. Maybe I'll figure it out. That's like my underlying reason for a podcast. You decide the label sort of isn't profitable It's successful in quotations, depending on your definition of that word. It's sort of not providing maybe stability that you're looking for from like a home place. And what happens from there? What's the change?
0: So my business was really a manufacturing business, my fashion business. And I realized that my tutoring business, a service business was much more profitable. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to pivot my business from manufacturing to service, especially since 99% of clothing is manufactured overseas now. So it's extremely difficult to manufacture clothing in the U.S. and make it profitable. So I decided to take all my skill sets and my teaching ability and pivot my business to classes and consulting. I realized there was a big need for people who wanted to learn fashion who did not want to commit to a college curriculum. And I really felt like they could take a la carte fashion classes without going to college for it that were way better than like the sewing classes at Joann's. There was yeah. no in between. There was nothing for just like learning draping, learning sketching, learning how to create your own designs in the market in Chicago. I pivoted from my Anna Hovit Hovitt Apparel clothing line to Hovitt Fashion Studio, which I now run. And we're in the same space, but what we do is, hobbyist classes. So those would be sewing, draping, pattern making. And those are group classes and private lessons taught by local fashion designers, because I knew all these fashion designers like me who were very highly skilled and had flexible hours that could teach these classes while giving these people advice about potentially starting yeah. their own line. And then on the other end, we have a consulting wing of our company where if people entrepreneurs wanna come in and start a clothing line and they don't know where to start and they don't wanna make it themselves, we will help them find a factory, get their samples made all the way through to delivery. So I've been doing that for about three years. I have an incredible team, all female fashion designers that work for me. And it's been really great because we can all utilize this incredible skill set we have and help people either be creative in an aspect of making clothing and making sketches or being creative in building businesses. And because I've built a couple of businesses, I love helping other entrepreneurs figure out the steps on how to do it.
1: When you were describing it, all I kept thinking is like, oh, she's helping others potentially solve the issues she had in her business, but they're now coming to you and you can kind of play with the solutions based on everybody else's needs. Sometimes in my business, like I have Sudoku moments. I'm like, oh, wait, this is fun. I get to like figure out the puzzle.
0: You know, I had 10 years of rookie mistakes that I can now help other people skip because I have been through it all. I know everyone in the city. I know all the manufacturers. I know all the things that could happen and go wrong. Therefore, they're paying me for my expertise of knowing all the things that can go wrong and what to do to avoid those errors. And it is also nice because there was so much work that went into building my fashion business that I didn't get paid for. I mean, that's any entrepreneur. There's hours and hours of your life that are not billable, that you're never paid for. And in a weird way, all those learning experiences and self-teaching moments are finally coming back and being charged this bill. Yeah, that's right. And you're like, oh, now
1: I know why I learned all this. Like it's finally for something.
0: For something, exactly. And,
1: And there are definitely, obviously you've got the clientele, but there are definitely people who are happy to pay to skip that step. And you happen to have the answers to the puzzle
0: especially in an industry that's so nebulous as apparel manufacturing. I mean, if someone just goes to try to make clothing on their own, it's almost impossible. Like all these factories are underground or they're overseas and they don't have the connection. And the actual process is so nebulous too. You don't just like submit a design on a napkin on online and get that prototype back. You have to source the fabric. You have to find a sample maker. You have to find a cutter. You have to find a factory. You have to think about fit. I mean, it is a very intense process, hence why people pay us production coordinators to just do it for them.
1: So then is your business also sort of production coordination for small brands?
0: Yes. Big time. I I would say that's about half our business and we don't do any in-house sewing or manufacturing for those clients, but we are the coordinators who put all those pieces together for them. Got it.
1: And are we, we're still ACT prepping?
0: Oh yeah. That's about. She's like, I'm doing ACT
1: prep till the end.
0: Right. I love it. I do. I'm doing a lot of GMAT and GRE. I took the GMAT for fun like two years ago and gotten the 97th percentile. Yeah. What?
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've never heard of anyone being like, oh, I took a test for fun.
0: I don't know. I, it is strange, but I try to help teenagers not hate it, which is sometimes hard, but I try yeah. to like make it I mean, that a is little a, more fun.
1: That is um, an honorable goal.
0: Right? I mean, even if I didn't have to do it, I would still do it because I just really enjoy it. And I like yeah. working with kids. You know, what? I don't like being bored and I yeah. don't like going to the same office every day. I could never do that. So yeah. between running home fashion and tutoring, I also teach at the School of the Art Institute. I teach fashion design and fashion illustration. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also the executive director of the Chicago Fashion Incubator, which is a really cool nonprofit in Macy's on State Street, where we help local fashion designers. So it goes right along with my experience being in that program in 2009, being an independent designer, and now helping entrepreneurs start their fashion line. So let's rotate back. You have a fashion line and you were a part of
1: this incubator at Macy's. Fast forward, you are now, I guess, a part of like the executive board for that same incubator. You now are running a business helping those same entrepreneurs. It's almost like you you started on one end of the scale and you've now ended up on the other end. And number one, I'm very interested to learn about that end of the scale. But secondly, do you think that 25 year old you would have ever imagined that you would be on the other side of it
0: i was a designer in residence in the chicago fashion incubator in 2009 and 10 years later i became a business mentor for them and then was promoted to a programming director and then just last year i became executive director so i run the whole thing now And I think it's a perfect fit for me because I know so much about the program and exactly what these designers need. You know, I've gone through it. So I really try to plan the curriculum around what I wish someone would have taught me 10 years ago. And I don't know if I'd be surprised if 25-year-old me knew that I would later become the executive director because it's so in my wheelhouse. It's exactly what I love to do. It's teaching, it's fashion, it's entrepreneurship. All of it together. It's a perfect, perfect fit for me. And I I love this job. It's like takes up maybe half my time, maybe a little less, but like it's one of the favorite of my four jobs. (laughs)
1: if you were ever offered like some sort of like, I don't even know what the right title is. So I'm going to like make it up. If this is probably not a real title, but you currently have a position teaching at the art Institute. If like some, I don't know, like some giant university with like world renowned fashion school was like, we want you to be the director of the school, AKA you have to give up all of your 87 jobs. And like that becomes your only job. Maybe you have one other on the side, but like, would you do it?
0: Oh, that's a good question. If you would have asked me three years ago when I was in transition for my other company, I would have probably said yes. But right now, it is tempting because Mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur, I don't have paid maternity leave, I don't have paid vacation, I don't have good health insurance. So part of me would love the stability of having like a more corporate level or, you know, professional job. But I do (laughs) genuinely think my new, Newer business, Hovet Fashion Studio, has great potential to be a pretty big company and potentially franchise one day. So at this point, I think I'd have to say no. I would I would keep doing what I'm doing. And I know like the whole gig economy sounds exhausting to a lot of people, but like I said before, I love the variety of it. Yeah. I like not going to the same place every day. I like working with a hundred people every month as opposed to the same five.
1: Right. It's taken me a long time to learn how to transition the gigs also, because there's like a lot of feelings tied in with all of it. And your image to the world gets very confusing. And you're like, it's that it's very complicated, actually, to try and get the world to understand what the hell you're doing and why you're doing it. And so, you know, to take some like prestigious job always seems like okay, everyone will understand. But I always wonder then on the inside, like when I go home and I close that front door and it's just me, would it really be fulfilling? Because I'm very much like you. I can't sit still. I can't be in the same room. I can't be in the same chair. I can't be in the same office every day. And would it really actually like fulfill some like innate want of stability that's just like
0: normal, I guess. That's a good question. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are very anti-authority and I don't think that that's me. I don't think I'm anti-authority. I'd be fine if I had a good boss telling me what to do. In fact, that would make my life so much easier. Easier. Someone just told me what to do and I did it every day. That would be so easy rather than having to plan everything and schedule everything and bill everyone all the time. But I think for me, it's about controlling my own efficiency and my own destiny. And what I mean by that is if I'm at a company that I don't think is fully utilized, me or is run inefficiently, that really bothers me. I'm like obsessed with efficiency. And I want to be able to utilize all my skill sets to the maximum. So if that happens, then I want to be able to, you know, go as far as I can, as far as like my skill set. Additionally, when you're an entrepreneur, you have no salary cap. So who knows, you could be losing money, but you could also potentially be a millionaire. And the idea of having that as a goal or an option is always so beneficial to me in that I'm controlling it as opposed to someone else deciding how much I'm going to work and therefore how much I'm going to make.
1: I agree a hundred percent. I think as long as you have the bandwidth to take on the risk, whether that's like personal bandwidth or like emotional bandwidth or literal bandwidth that risk, the reward on that is that ultimately you get to decide how many hours you work, what day you work and how much money you make. I posted this yesterday on Instagram. I said, I hadn't, this was the first weekend I had taken off in an absurd amount of time. And I am not one to glorify overworking. I'm like anti-overworking if there was ever an anti for it. But (laughs) I was making money and I was like, I ain't stopping. And I have (laughs) the ability to say, I'm working this weekend. I'm working this weekend. And I'm working this weekend versus if it's a job, they're like, no, ma'am, you go home. We don't pay you. Off you go.
0: Yes. And I think millennials really appreciate that workplace flexibility. I talk about that in a TEDx talk I did in 2013, how millennials value flexibility over pay in that, You know, we're okay with working weekends, especially if we want to go do something on a Tuesday. The one thing about having a flexible schedule for me is I'm having a baby in a couple months and I don't have paid maternity leave, not that a lot of women in this country do, but I do have the flexibility to potentially stay longer at my job or stay less or go back early. We don't have childcare completely confirmed yet, so being able to potentially take an extra couple weeks of maternity leave or slowly go back into my job is an incredible part of being an entrepreneur because I make my own schedule. And then also one other thing I was going to note yeah. from what you were saying before was you know, the risk of entrepreneurship is real, but I think one way to mitigate that risk is to do what we do and have multiple ventures. Some are more steady than others. You know, my husband has a nine to five. He has that same income every single week. And like, I teach at the School of the Art Institute and that is a paycheck that comes in every other week. And that is like, you know, it's small, but it's keeping me somewhat registered as opposed to with entrepreneurship and cash flow, you could be making tons of money one month and losing a bunch of the that's next. That's right.
1: I, that's like the joke of my girlfriends. They're like, is she a millionaire this month or is she like dead broke? <laughs> like hard to tell. I mean, it's, it's I very if I haven't been around for six weeks, I'm most likely gonna be a millionaire soon. And if I'm yes. like around every day, girl has no money.
0: Exactly. And then the cash flow of it all and trying to make a budget. My financial advisors, I was trying to get me down to a budget oh, I was yeah. like, I can't have a budget because I don't know how much money I'm making.
1: That has been like the struggle of my life. My best friend is like the most financially organized human being that has ever existed on planet earth. Like there has never been a more organized person when it comes to finances. Like she knows to the dollar what she's spending, what category it goes in. And she's tried to explain it to me a thousand different times. And we've tried to do this a thousand different times. And I go, listen, it won't work. I'm a millionaire. This a
0: I'm going to be
1: dead broke next month.
0: <laughs> like you yep. can't
1: put money in piles with me. It doesn't work. And-
0: It gets more complex when you have employees because those employee paychecks come before anything. They come before my rent. So I have to make sure that I have the cash flow to pay them way before I pay myself. And there's been times where I've had to take my personal money and put it back into the business just to make sure that their checks clear.
1: That's so stressful. I only know that on a very small scale, but like it had me up at night. I do not like, oh, it makes me nervous. Or like you front the money for things all the time. And you're like, well, wow, I really hope this all works out. Well,
0: key. that was one of the reasons the service model is was so much better for me. With manufacturing, I was buying the raw materials and paying to get these clothes made almost a year before they were sold. So the cash flow was terrible. And with my service business, people prepay. Right. And I never have to worry about it. So much better. And so it's also better.
1: incredible that you figured out how to put your two brains together. So, that funny question I asked in the beginning of like, Are you like two humans in one body? (laughs) You've actually figured out how to take the very things that you are good at, the very skills you have, and capitalize on them in the most successful, in quotations, aka profitable way, and provide a service that's super needed.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm naturally much more logical and academic, but I really want to be creative. Yeah. So like, I don't know if that does come naturally to me. Maybe I have to work a little harder on it. But I've pushed myself through, you know, going to one of the toughest art schools in the country to like push the creative side. And now I'm able to blend them. When you're at
1: the Macy's Incubator, for example, or even at the Art Institute, do you ever interact with students and you're like, like, can you tell off the bat, like, oh, that'll work? Uh, that one is going to be lost for a little bit. Oh, that one's going to be this. Like, can you tell? Like, could somebody tell on you? I always wonder that.
0: (laughs) That's a great question. I mean... I think that I can. You know, a lot of times when we're interviewing designers to get into the Chicago Fashion Incubator, which we're doing right now, we have another session starting January 1st. So we're currently accepting applications. Yes, I can usually see. (laughs) Yeah, right. I can usually see their ambition level. And Mm -hmm. sometimes you'll see designers that like aesthetically aren't quite there or their categories not quite there, that you can teach, that you can mold. But I can tell when someone's a hustler, when someone I know is going to come to all the workshops, I know is going to start this business no matter what, I know is scrappy and will be able to use social media and build their own website. And it's going to do this whether they get into our program or not. That's yeah. who I'm looking for as a designer is someone who says, I'm starting this business. I would love your help. Yeah. Not like, I might start this business or I have an idea for a business. I see so many people, especially people with MBAs, surprisingly, planning to start a business, plan, 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 plan. And then they just never do it. They never take that dive. They don't have the guts to just launch. And I think the people who don't have an MBA are the ones who just kind of dive in and then you figure it out as you go. I
1: feel like people with MBAs, first of all, people with MBAs, some of them are entrepreneurs, but obviously a lot are in corporate. And I would argue that maybe they're being taught how to exist in an existing model versus how to create the model. And so then they're like, they're planning, they're trying to like get all the pieces. Whereas you and I would say, you literally need like two pieces and just like jump and like hope. One of them is the parachute and the rest will figure, you know, you'll get there. They're trying to put it like a perfect picture before it's go time. And it's like, you literally just need like the basics.
0: You don't know what's going to happen. You have no idea. So by running those numbers ahead of time, you have, you have no idea if you're going to have sales, if you're going to have profitability. And so I think, you know, in my experience with people with, you know, a master's in business is they are very numbers based and unless the numbers make sense they will not start the business, which I guess from a business perspective is probably a good idea. If you're starting a business to make money, that's probably not a great idea. You're not going to, you're not going to enjoy it. You're going to get burnt out. Entrepreneurship takes so much hard work, lack of sleep and, you know, personal sacrifices that unless you're really excited about what you're doing and what you're building, you're not going to follow through because you can only work for free so much if you don't enjoy it
1: my whole life, people have said certain things to me that to this day have not come to fruition, but like they're said to me. And I always wonder, I'm like, do you guys have like a crystal ball that I don't have? And like, it's gonna, or is this just like BS being like shoved in my face? I just, I don't. So now I've, I always ask the people on the other side, I'm like, is there a crystal ball? Like, do you guys have one? Is that what, what this is?
0: I don't think so because now that I'm looking back, when I applied for the Macy's incubator in 2008 to get in on 2009, I didn't get selected. I wasn't even chosen. I was just the alternate and someone dropped out six months in. So then I got in. So clearly, I did not look like a promising candidate. And now, you know, 10 years later, I'm the only one out of my group, you know, still really working in fashion other than a few, you know, independent contractors. So, well, I don't know. I guess. So scratch never crystal know.
1: Out, No one has any fucking idea. They're oh all wrong. Goodness. anyway, And we get to stick to our own
0: thing. Right. I'm very small and I'm, yeah. I look young. So I think that was always a challenge when I was starting my business, especially because I was young. I was 23 when I started my yeah. business and to get people to take me seriously, especially people in finance was very difficult. Yeah. And I think even today, it's very hard for me to get capital other than from community banks or banks I'm already working with, because I'm not in those conversations with venture capitalists. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people in the art world and a lot of women are not in those same, you know, technology-based capital conversations where other people are just like getting funded for an idea on a napkin for a million dollars. And I can barely get a line of credit for $20,000.
1: I also then wonder like those MBA people, a million years ago, I was like, Should I just go get an MBA? Like, is that what I'm missing in my life? And everyone very quickly was like, you'll survive six weeks. Please don't do that. I am not a a school person. But... Now I have somebody that I knew as a child who went and got her MBA at a very prestigious school on the East Coast and met a lot of really important people and a lot of venture people. And she's been able to start this business that A, is like groundbreaking, but also it's insanely full of venture capital money, like insanely full. And I wonder, I'm like, is this because scratch your MBA, like who cares that you have an MBA? It's that you were in the crowd with the right people.
0: Yes exactly it. I really think that's exactly it. I uh, I also s- thought about going to get my MBA, but I was only going to get it if I went to Harvard or Stanford or MIT specifically so I could be in those conversations with those people who were doing big things. It wasn't because I necessarily wanted the education and I sure didn't want the $200,000 right. price tag, but to be in those conversations could be worth it.
1: That was my thought too. And obviously like she's incredible and what she's doing is incredible, but
0: I'm like, damn, like, I mean,
1: you paid a lot of money to be in that room, (laughs) but given the valuation of her company right now, I would say worth it times a billion.
0: Well worth it. Well worth it.
1: but, But I think that there's important conversation there to be had. It's very exciting to have people like you being the director of these incubators, because there is a really big sort of discrepancy between who's being funded and why they're being funded and what they look like in order to get that funding. And so on and so forth. And to have directors of a certain age that look a certain way that are female, there is something to say for like the door that just their existence will open for that next crew of people It's just really exciting. I have I had so. a very similar problem everywhere I go. There are comments about how I look one way or another. And I think I'm only just now starting to look an appropriate age and it was always like you're too young who's going to give you a million dollars who's going to mm-hmm. who's going to believe that you can handle their million dollars it's
0: like but i can't i know sometimes you just have to bootstrap and prove yourself and yeah. i'm still hoping that when that opportunity does present itself i'll have all the building blocks ready to go to franchise or to launch i actually wow. did this really interesting program recently called the Goldman Sachs 10,000 small businesses hmm. it's this kind of a mini MBA for current small businesses. They have satellite offices all over the country. They have one in Chicago. And every five months they start a new cohort and they do a very, very intense four month coaching session for about 30 entrepreneurs about anything and everything business related, marketing, operations, funding. And it was free, free if you get in and you just need to have a revenue of $75,000 or higher in order to potentially be considered for the program. So any small businesses who just need a little brush up on business, check yeah. out the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Program. That sounds it was awesome. really helpful.
1: Yeah, it's super helpful to also, obviously you have to apply and, and be chosen, but it's helpful to always have these sort of big corporations be providing real, organized, useful information to small businesses mm-hmm. because obviously they don't always have an ability to go get that information from somewhere. And so they're bootstrapping and YouTubing and figuring it out as they go. But so much more helpful to like even have a roadmap of the problem you might face to think about a solution ahead of time so you don't sort of stick your heels in mud and then have to drag this mud around everywhere with you. Yeah, I'm
0: all about using large corporation money to fund small businesses. I mean, the Macy's Chicago Fashion Incubator is in Macy's on State Street. It's sponsored by macy's so we get to use this corporate money to build small businesses that aren't necessarily going to sell in macy's but will hopefully be selling in smaller boutiques or direct to customer
1: are there any other sort of like fashion incubators specifically geared towards small fashion brands like i can think of a million tech ones i can think of all of that or even nonprofit ones
0: there's not a lot of other fashion incubators there are three macy's incubators ours in Chicago, one in Philadelphia, and one in San Francisco. San Francisco one is technically in Bloomingdale's because they're a sister company of Macy's. Um, And then I I know of one other incubator in Tempe, Arizona, that's not associated with Macy's, but is doing a very similar program to us. There are a lot of online fashion incubators, but Mm -hmm. I think ours is really special because we really focus around mentorship. We hook the designers up with several mentors, business mentor, a production mentor, a marketing, and a branding. And they have one-on-one meetings with them so that they can be individualized towards their existing business. As far as Chicago goes, I, there aren't a lot of other fashion incubators. There's other business incubators yeah. and there's other fashion programs, but no one who is doing what we're doing.
1: That's so interesting too. And I, I there's such parallels between your business and the incubator. Like Your business is the for-profit version basically of, of an incubator. But It's weird that like you would think like New York, right? Like the fact that like there wouldn't be something like that in New York, like would blow my brain.
0: Right. And there are for-profit companies in New York that do things very similar to Hobbit Fashion. And I think the differentiator between Hobbit Fashion Studio and the Chicago Fashion Incubator is the Hobbit Fashion has either people who just want to be hobbyists and don't want to start a business or people who are way on the business side that don't really want to do the sewing and draping uh, and things like that on uh-huh. themselves. And the incubator is this really nice niche of designers who want to make their own clothes and start a business. So we have a big studio space in the Pedway underneath Macy's that has cutting tables and sewing machines and irons. And then it also has offices and a showroom in it. So it's kind of like that perfect niche where they're not a student, but they want to be a hands-on creator to be in the Chicago Fashion Incubator. Uh, I see. It's like the piece that like
1: the for-profit businesses essentially don't have because obviously you have nothing to produce yet.
0: Yeah. And a lot of the people in the Chicago Fashion Incubator are like me in that they're probably bootstrapping. They probably aren't coming from a ton of capital. So I'm helping them kind of put the pieces together in the most financially efficient way that they can. So interesting.
1: And is there like an opportunity for them to like be featured at Macy's or like, is there any connection back to Macy's or is Macy's just funding?
0: Macy's is mostly just funding it, but the Macy's on State Street does collaborate with us on in-store events and Mm -hmm. different shopping things, which is really, really nice because we've had a few events this summer that Macy's has funded and put their name on. And then also they've actually let us do little pop-up shops on the first floor. So Mm -hmm. we're still having the designers run their own credit cards, run their own processes it's not connected to Macy's, but they're giving us that as like a nice venue for yeah. us to be there. I think it's as a pop, awesome.
1: That's so interesting and such a great sort of collaborative moment because you're getting a huge name, but you're still sort of running yourself as a small business.
0: And it makes Macy's look good promoting yeah. local designers and being like, here's some special things that we're yeah. supporting.
1: Yeah, no, it, it looks good on everybody. And it's so amazing to like just like what a journey to be like one of the people chosen to be in the incubator to then being the
0: director of the incubator. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. I, I obviously like run in the same circles because I yeah. went to the school, of the art Institute and I now teach yeah. there and I was in the incubator and now I run it. I mean, clearly there's some sort of cyclical process happening. You could have life. sucked and they could have been like, you <laughs> we're never like having her back,
1: parties, but like, please don't <laughs> that's enough of no, you. Thank
0: you. I'm making a good impression, but then I think it's also about staying connected too. It's staying connected to these communities that you're in, even if it's just a little bit here and there because they're always going to be looking for good people they trust. Yeah, and I've said this before and I
1: will continue to say it, being a real fucking person and like acting like your real self makes it so much easier to stay connected because you are just yourself. Like it's easy to be you and people will feel that and then they'll connect to it. And so then people want to be around you and vice versa. And those connections then stay so much more productive. Even
0: in fashion, I think it's really beneficial to just be friendly, to just be likable. Because, you know, I think fashion has this stigma of like a lot of superficialities and ego. But at the end of the day, those people tend to come and go. It's the people that you enjoy being around that you're going to recommend to others that you're going to hire for your businesses. So being a nice person, even in the fashion industry, will get you farther than a lot of talent. I think
1: every industry. Don't get mean emails. (laughs)
0: <laughs> don't write me an emails. Per my last
1: email, called per my last email, but <laughs> don't send emails that start with per my last email. Exactly. It doesn't end well when they're received. Amazing. Thank you so
0: much for doing this. Yeah, no problem. It was nice chatting with you. It's nice to catch up and, and see you in your beautiful pregnancy glowingness. You'll probably hear me breathing heavy on the recording. I feel like this baby's pushing my diaphragm, and I'm like <gasps> all the time. Listen, just edit she that that out. Space
1: and she's like, screw you. You get no <laughs> organs. This Pretty is much. my home now.
0: Apparently she's in the 70th percentile. So I got a big ass baby somehow. I don't know how I produced a big baby, but whatever. Is your
1: family tall?
0: No. And my husband's really short and his yeah. whole family's short. So
1: Okay. Well, let's oh, just I'll give I'll you good. a sticker for a good job nourishing the baby.
0: Thank you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> good job, Mama Bear.
0: Oh, thanks. I met Andrew Yang a couple weeks ago, and I'm a huge Andrew Yang oh, fan. I'm totally, I'm wow. totally a Yang Yang fan. And he came over and he shook my hand, and I fangirled so hard. I said to him, "Thank you." And then he walked away, and I was like, "What is wrong did with I, me? Why? What did I just thank him for?" <laughs> it was so dumb.
1: Oh, there's a woman who's like incredible, and she's going to be like honored at a luncheon I'm going to this week. And I texted the person who knows her personally, and I was like, She's going to be there. Can I run up to her? Can I have her on the podcast? They're like, Please stop. Uh,
0: you know, you think, think you're going to be like, so cool when yeah. you meet these people. You're like, I'm going to have some really smart to say. Nothing no, productive is said.
1: You're like, Thank you nothing. for
0: existing on this planet. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. You're like, this is no, no value. Right. If he only knew how smart I was and how many good ideas I have for him.
1: (laughs) Right. Instead, he's like, there's this random lady who keeps thanking me for existing.
0: Random pregnant woman who's shaking my hand and looking at me doe-eyed. Oh my God. Oh, so embarrassing.
1: Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or I thoroughly annoyed you enough that you feel like you have to come back for more, please go subscribe, rate us, send a review, and share us on social. You sharing us means all of our struggles don't have to be in silence anymore. And it means we all have a voice. Most importantly, it means I get to keep making
0: episodes. So please go share.